The Ego and His Own by Max Stirner Continued, Cassette 6, Side 2 Right is a wheel in the head, put there by a spook. Power, that am I myself. I am the powerful one and owner of power. Right is above me, is absolute, and exists in one higher, as whose grace it flows to me. Right is a gift of grace from the judge. Power and might exist only in me, the powerful and mighty. B. My Intercourse In society the human demand at most can be satisfied, while the egoistic must always come short. Because it can hardly escape anybody that the present shows no such living interest in any question as in the social, one has to direct his gaze especially to society. Nay, if the interest felt in it were less passionate and dazzled, people would not so much, in looking at society, lose sight of the individuals in it, and would recognize that a society cannot become new so long as those who form and constitute it remain the old ones. If, for example, there was to arise in the Jewish people a society which should spread a new faith over the earth, these apostles could in no case remain Pharisees. As you are, so you present yourself, so you behave toward men, a hypocrite as a hypocrite, a Christian as a Christian. Therefore, the character of a society is determined by the character of its members. They are its creators. So much, at least, one must perceive, even if one were not willing to put to the test the concept society itself. Ever far from letting themselves come to their full development and consequence, men have hitherto not been able to found their societies on themselves, or rather, they have been able only to found societies and to live in societies. The societies were always persons, powerful persons, so-called moral persons, ghosts, before which the individual had the appropriate wheel in his head, the fear of ghosts. As such ghosts, they may most suitably be designated by the respective names people and peoplet, the people of the patriarchs, the people of the Hellenes, etc., at last, the people of men, mankind. Anacharsis Clotes was enthusiastic for the nation of mankind. Then every subdivision of this people, which could and must have its special societies, the Spanish, French people, etc. Within it again, classes, cities, in short, all kinds of corporations. Lastly, tapering to the finest point, the little peoplet of the family. Hence, instead of saying that the person that walked as ghost in all societies hitherto has been the people, there might also have been named the two extremes, to wit, either mankind or the family, both the most natural-born units. We choose the word people because its derivation has been brought into connection with the Greek poloi, the many, or the masses, but still more because national efforts are at present the order of the day, and because even the newest mutineers have not yet shaken off this deceptive person, although, on the other hand, the latter consideration must give the preference to the expression mankind, since on all sides they are going in for enthusiasm over mankind. The people, then, mankind or the family, have hitherto, as it seems, played history. No egoistic interest was to come up in these societies, but solely general ones, national or popular interests, class interests, family interests, and general human interests. But who has brought to their fall the peoples whose decline history relates? Who but the egoist, who was seeking his satisfaction? 
If once an egoistic interest crept in, the society was corrupted and moved toward its dissolution, as Rome proves with its highly developed system of private rights, or Christianity with the incessantly breaking in rational self-determination, self-consciousness, the autonomy of the spirit, and so on. The Christian people has produced two societies whose duration will keep equal measure with the permanence of that people. These are the societies state and church. Can they be called a union of egoists? Do we in them pursue an egoistic, personal, own interest? Or do we pursue a popular, an interest of the Christian people, to wit, a state and church interest? Can I and may I be myself in them? May I think and act as I will? May I reveal myself, live myself out, busy myself? Must I not leave untouched the majesty of the state, the sanctity of the church? Well, I may not do so as I will, but shall I find in any society such an unmeasured freedom of maying? Certainly no. Accordingly, we might be content? Not a bit. It is a different thing whether I rebound from an ego or from a people, a generalization. There I am my opponent's opponent, born his equal. Here I am a despised opponent, bound and under a guardian. There I stand man to man. Here I am a schoolboy who can accomplish nothing against his comrade because the latter has called father and mother to aid and has crept under the apron, while I am well scolded as an ill-bred brat, and I must not argue. There I fight against a bodily enemy, here against mankind, against a generalization, against a majesty, against a spook. But to me no majesty, nothing sacred, is a limit, nothing that I know how to overpower. Only that which I cannot overpower still limits my might, and I of limited might am temporarily a limited I, not limited by the might outside me, but limited by my own still deficient might, by my own impotence. However, the guard dies but does not surrender. Above all, only a bodily opponent. I dare meet every foeman whom I can see and measure with my eye whose metal fires my metal for the fight, etc. Many privileges have indeed been cancelled with time, but solely for the sake of the common wheel, of the state and the state's wheel, by no means for the strengthening of me. Vassalage was abrogated only that a single liege lord, the lord of the people, the monarchical power, might be strengthened. Vassalage under the one became yet more rigorous thereby. Only in favor of the monarch, be he called prince or law, have privileges fallen. In France, the citizens are not, indeed, vassals of the king, but are instead vassals of the law, the charter. Subordination was retained. Only the Christian state recognized that man cannot serve two masters, the lord of the manor and the prince. Therefore, one obtained all the prerogatives. Now he can again place one above another. He can make men in high place. But of what concern to me is the common wheel? The common wheel as such is not my wheel, but only the furthest extremity of self-renunciation. The common wheel may cheer aloud while I must down. The state may shine while I starve. In what lies the folly of the political liberals but in their opposing the people to the government and talking of people's rights? So there is the people going to be of age, etc., as if one who has no mouth could be mündig, the German word for of age, derived from mund, mouth, and referring properly to the right of speaking through one's own mouth, not by a guardian. 
only the individual is able to be mundig. Thus, the whole question of the liberty of the press is turned upside down when it is laid claim to as a right of the people. It is only a right, or better, the might of the individual. If a people has liberty of the press, then I, although in the midst of this people, have it not. A liberty of the people is not my liberty, and the liberty of the press as a liberty of the people must have at its side a press law directed against me. This must be insisted on all around against the present-day efforts for liberty. Liberty of the people is not my liberty. Let us admit these categories, liberty of the people and right of the people, for example, the right of the people that everybody may bear arms. Does one not forfeit such a right? One cannot forfeit his own right, but may well forfeit a right that belongs not to me, but to the people. I may be locked up for the sake of the liberty of the people. I may, under sentence, incur the loss of the right to bear arms. Liberalism appears as the last attempt at a creation of the liberty of the people, a liberty of the commune, of society, of the general, of mankind, the dream of a humanity, a people, a commune, a society that shall be of age. A people cannot be free otherwise than at the individual's expense. For it is not the individual that is the main point in this liberty, but the people. The freer the people, the more bound the individual. The Athenian people, precisely at its freest time, created ostracism, banished the atheists, poisoned the most honest thinker. How they do praise Socrates for his conscientiousness, which makes him resist the advice to get away from the dungeon. He is a fool that he concedes to the Athenians a right to condemn him. Therefore, it certainly serves him right. Why then does he remain standing on an equal footing with the Athenians? Why does he not break with them? Had he known and been able to know what he was, he would have conceded to such judges no claim, no right. That he did not escape was just his weakness, his delusion of still having something in common with the Athenians, or the opinion that he was a member, a mere member of this people. But he was rather this people itself in person, and could only be his own judge. There was no judge over him, as he himself had really pronounced a public sentence on himself, and rated himself worthy of the Prytaneum. He should have stuck to that, and, as he had uttered no sentence of death against himself, should have despised that of the Athenians too, and escaped. But he subordinated himself, and recognized in the people his judge. He seemed little to himself before the majesty of the people. That he subjected himself to might, to which alone he could succumb, as to a right, was treason against himself. It was virtue. To Christ, who, it is alleged, refrained from using the power over his heavenly legions, the same scrupulousness is thereby ascribed by the narrators. Luther did very well and wisely to have the safety of his journey to Worms guaranteed to him in black and white, and Socrates should have known that the Athenians were his enemies, he alone his judge. The self-deception of a reign of law, etc., should have given way to the perception that the relation was a relation of might. It was with pettifoggery and intrigues that Greek liberty ended. Why? Because the ordinary Greeks could still less attain that logical conclusion which not even their hero of thought, Socrates, was able to draw. What then is pettifoggery but a way of utilizing something established without doing away with it? I might add, for one's own advantage, but you see, that lies in utilizing. 
Such pettifoggers are the theologians who rest and force God's word. What would they have to rest if it were not for the established word of God? So those liberals who only shake and rest the established order, they are all perverters like those perverters of the law. Socrates recognized law, right. The Greeks constantly retained the authority of right and law. If with this recognition they wanted nevertheless to assert their advantage, every one his own, then they had to seek it in perversion of the law, or intrigue. Alcibiades, an intriguer of genius, introduces the period of Athenian decay. The Spartan Lysander and others show that intrigue had become universally Greek. Greek law, on which the Greek states rested, had to be perverted and undermined by the egoists within these states, and the states went down that the individuals might become free. The Greek people fell because the individuals cared less for this people than for themselves. In general, all states, constitutions, churches, have sunk by the secession of individuals. For the individual is the irreconcilable enemy of every generality, every tie, every fetter. Yet people fancy to this day that man needs sacred ties, he, the deadly enemy of every tie. The history of the world shows that no tie has yet remained unrent, shows that man tirelessly defends himself against ties of every sort. And yet, blinded, people think up new ties again and again, and think that they have arrived at the right one, if one puts upon them the tie of a so-called free constitution, a beautiful constitutional tie. Decoration ribbons, the ties of confidence between so-and-so and so-and-so, -and -so, do seem gradually to have become somewhat infirm, but people have made no further progress than from apron strings to garters and collars. Everything sacred is a tie, a fetter. Everything sacred is and must be perverted by perverters of the law. Therefore, our present time has multitudes of such perverters in all spheres. They are preparing the way for the breakup of law, for lawlessness. Poor Athenians who are accused of pettifoggery and sophistry, poor Alcibiades of intrigue, why that was just your best point, your first step in freedom. Your Aeschylus, Herodotus, etc., only wanted to have a free Greek people. You were the first to surmise something of your freedom. A people represses those who tower above its majesty by ostracism against two powerful citizens, by the inquisition against the heretics of the church, by the inquisition against traitors in the state. For the people is concerned only with its self-assertion. It demands patriotic self-sacrifice from everybody. To it, accordingly, everyone in himself is indifferent, a nothing, and it cannot do, not even suffer, what the individual and he alone must do to wit, turn him to account. Every people, every state, is unjust toward the egoist. As long as there still exists even one institution which the individual may not dissolve, the ownness and self-appurtenance of me is still very remote. How can I be free when I must bind myself by oath to a constitution, a charter, a law, vow body and soul to my people? How can I be my own when my faculties may develop only so far as they do not disturb the harmony of society? The fall of peoples and mankind will invite me to my rise. Listen, even as I am writing this, the bells begin to sound, that they may jingle in for tomorrow the festival of the thousand years' existence of our dear Germany. Sound, sound its knell. 
you do sound solemn enough, as if your tongue was moved by the presentiment that it is giving convoy to a corpse. The German people and German peoples have behind them a history of a thousand years. What a long life! Oh, go to rest, never to rise again, that all may become free whom you so long have held in fetters. The people is dead. Up with me! O oh, thou, my much tormented German people, what was thy torment? It was the torment of a thought that cannot create itself a body, the torment of a walking spirit that dissolves into nothing at every cockcrow, and yet pines for deliverance and fulfillment. In me too thou hast lived long, thou dear, thought, thou dear, spook. Already I almost fancied I had found the word of thy deliverance, discovered flesh and bones for the wandering spirit. Then I hear them sound, the bells that usher thee into eternal rest. Then the last hope fades out, then the notes of the last love die away. Then I depart from the desolate house of those who now are dead, and enter at the door of the living one. For only he who is alive is in the right. Farewell, thou dream of so many millions. Farewell, thou who hast tyrannized over thy children for a thousand years. Tomorrow they carry thee to the grave. Soon thy sisters, the peoples, will follow thee. But when they have all followed, then mankind is buried, and I am my own. I am the laughing heir. The word Gesellschaft, society, has its origin in the word Zal, hall. If one hall encloses many persons, then the hall causes these persons to be in society. They are in society and at most constitute a parlor society by talking in the traditional forms of parlor speech. When it comes to real intercourse, this is to be regarded as independent of society. It may occur or be lacking without altering the nature of what is named society. Those who are in the hall are a society even as mute persons, or when they put each other off solely with empty phrases of courtesy. Intercourse is mutuality. It is the action, the commercium, of individuals. Society is only community of the hall, and even the statues of a museum hall are in society. They are grouped. People are accustomed to say that they haben inna, this hall in common. But the case is rather that the hall has us inna, or in it. So far the natural signification of the word society. In this it comes out that society is not generated by me and you, but by a third factor which makes associates out of us too, and that it is just this third factor that is the creative one, that which creates society. Just so a prison society, or prison companionship, those who enjoy the same prison. Here we already hit upon a third factor fuller of significance than was that merely local one, the hall. Prison no longer means a space only, but a space with express reference to its inhabitants, for it is a prison only through being destined for prisoners, without whom it would be a mere building. What gives a common stamp to those who are gathered in it? Evidently, the prison, since it is only by means of the prison that they are prisoners. What then determines the manner of life of the prison society? The prison. What determines their intercourse? The prison too, perhaps? Certainly they can enter upon intercourse only as prisoners, only so far as the prison laws allow it. But that they themselves hold intercourse, I with you, this the prison cannot bring to pass. On the contrary, it must have an eye to guarding against such egoistic, purely personal intercourse, 
and only as such is it really intercourse between me and you. That we jointly execute a job, run a machine, effectuate anything in general, for this a prison will indeed provide. But that I forget that I am a prisoner, and engage in intercourse with you who likewise disregard it, brings danger to the prison, and not only cannot be caused by it, but must not even be permitted. For this reason, the saintly and moral-minded French chamber decides to introduce solitary confinement, and other saints will do the like in order to cut off demoralizing intercourse. Imprisonment is the established and sacred condition, to injure which no attempt must be made. The slightest push of that kind is punishable, as is every uprising against a sacred thing by which man is to be charmed and chained. Like the hall, the prison does form a society, a companionship, a communion, as in a communion of labor, but no intercourse, no reciprocity, no union. On the contrary, every union in the prison bears within it the dangerous seed of a plot, which under favorable circumstances might spring up and bear fruit. Yet one does not usually enter the prison voluntarily, and seldom remains in it voluntarily either, but cherishes the egoistic desire for liberty. Here, therefore, it sooner becomes manifest that personal intercourse is in hostile relations to the prison society and tends to the dissolution of this very society, this joint incarceration. Let us therefore look about for such communions as, it seems, we remain in gladly and voluntarily without wanting to endanger them by our egoistic impulses. As a communion of the required sort, the family offers itself in the first place. Parents, husbands and wife, children, brothers and sisters, represent a whole or form a family, for the further widening of which the collateral relatives also may be made to serve if taken into account. The family is a true communion only when the law of the family, piety or family love, is observed by its members. A son to whom parents, brothers, and sisters have become indifferent has been a son, for as the sonship no longer shows itself efficacious, it has no greater significance than the long-past connection of mother and child by the navel string. That one has once lived in this bodily juncture cannot as a fact be undone, and so far one remains irrevocably this mother's son and the brother of the rest of her children. But it would come to a lasting connection only by lasting piety, this spirit of the family. Individuals are members of a family in the full sense only when they make the persistence of the family their task. Only as conservative do they keep aloof from doubting their basis, the family. To every member of the family one thing must be fixed and sacred, to wit, the family itself, or more expressively, piety. That the family is to persist remains to its member so long as he keeps himself free from that egoism which is hostile to the family, an unassailable truth. In a word, if the family is sacred, then nobody who belongs to it may secede from it, else he becomes a criminal against the family. He may never pursue an interest hostile to the family, form a misalliance, he who does this has dishonored the family, put it to shame, etc. Now, if in an individual the egoistic impulse has not force enough, he complies and makes a marriage which suits the claims of the family, takes a rank which harmonizes with its position and the like. In short, he does honor to the family. If, on the contrary, the egoistic blood flows fierily enough in his veins, he prefers to become a criminal against the family and to throw off its laws. 
Which of the two lies nearer my heart, the good of the family or my good? In innumerable cases, both go peacefully together. The advantage of the family is, at the same time, mine, and vice versa. Then it is hard to decide whether I am thinking selfishly or for the common benefit, and perhaps I complacently flatter myself with my unselfishness. But there comes the day when a necessity of choice makes me tremble, when I have it in mind to dishonor my family tree, to affront parents, brothers, and kindred. What then? Now it will appear how I am disposed at the bottom of my heart. Now it will be revealed whether piety ever stood above egoism for me. Now the selfish one can no longer skulk behind the semblance of unselfishness. A wish rises in my soul, and growing from hour to hour becomes a passion. To whom does it occur at first blush that the slightest thought which may result adversely to the spirit of the family, piety, bears within it a transgression against this? Nay, who at once in the first moment becomes completely conscious of the matter? It happens so with Juliet in Romeo and Juliet. The unruly passion can at last no longer be tamed and undermines the building of piety. You will say, indeed, it is from self-will that the family casts out of its bosom those willful ones that grant more of a hearing to their passion than to piety. The good Protestants used the same excuse with much success against the Catholics and believed in it themselves. But it is just a subterfuge to roll the fault off oneself, nothing more. The Catholics had regard for the common bond of the Church and thrust those heretics from them only because these did not have so much regard for the bond of the Church as to sacrifice their convictions to it. The former, therefore, held the bond fast because the bond, the Catholic, common, and united Church, was sacred to them. The latter, on the contrary, disregarded the bond. Just so those who lack piety. They are not thrust out, but thrust themselves out prizing their passion, their willfulness, higher than the bond of the family. But now sometimes a wish glimmers in a less passionate and willful heart than Juliet's. The pliable girl brings herself as a sacrifice to the peace of the family. One might say that here, too, selfishness prevailed, for the decision came from the feeling that the pliable girl felt herself more satisfied by the unity of the family than by the fulfillment of her wish. That might be. But what if there remained a sure sign that egoism had been sacrificed to piety? What if, even after the wish that had been directed against the peace of the family was sacrificed, it remained at least as a recollection of a sacrifice brought to a sacred tie? What if the pliable girl were conscious of having left her self-will unsatisfied and humbly subjected herself to a higher power? Subjected and sacrificed because the superstition of piety exercised its dominion over her. There egoism won, here piety wins, and the egoistic heart bleeds. There egoism was strong, here it was weak. But the weak, as we have long known, are the unselfish. For them, for these its weak members, the family cares, because they belong to the family, do not belong to themselves, and care for themselves. This weakness Hegel praises when he wants to have matchmaking left to the choice of the parents. As a sacred communion to which, among the rest, the individual owes obedience, the family has the judicial function too vested in it. Such a family court is described in the cabanas of Villibald Alexis. There the father, in the name of the family council, puts the intractable son among the soldiers and thrusts him out of the family in order to cleanse the smirched family again by means of this act of punishment. 
The most consistent development of family responsibility is contained in Chinese law, according to which the whole family has to expiate the individual's fault. Today, however, the arm of family power seldom reaches far enough to take seriously in hand the punishment of apostates. In most cases, the state protects even against disinheritance. The criminal against the family, family criminal, flees into the domain of the state and is free, as the state criminal who gets away to America is no longer reached by the punishments of his state. He who has shamed his family, the graceless son, is protected against the family's punishment because the state, this protecting lord, takes away from family punishment its sacredness and profanes it, decreeing that it is only revenge. It restrains punishment, this sacred family right, because before its, the state's sacredness, the subordinate sacredness of the family always pales and loses its sanctity as soon as it comes in conflict with this higher sacredness. Without the conflict, the state lets pass the lesser sacredness of the family. But in the opposite case, it even commands crime against the family, charging, for example, the son to refuse obedience to his parents as soon as they want to beguile him to a crime against the state. Well, the egoist has broken the ties of the family and found in the state a lord to shelter him against the grievously affronted spirit of the family. But where has he run now? Straight into a new society in which his egoism is awaited by the same snares and nets that it has just escaped. For the state is likewise a society, not a union. It is the broadened family, father of the country, mother of the country, children of the country. What is called a state is a tissue and plexus of dependence and adherence. It is a belonging together, a holding together, in which those who are placed together fit themselves to each other, or, in short, mutually depend on each other. It is the order of this dependence. Suppose the king, whose authority lends authority to all down to the beetle, should vanish. Still, all in whom the will for order was awake would keep order erect against the disorders of bestiality. If disorder were victorious, the state would be at an end. But is this thought of love, to fit ourselves to each other, to adhere to each other and depend on each other, really capable of winning us? According to this, the state should be love realized, the being for each other and living for each other of all. Is not self-will being lost while we attend to the will for order? Will people not be satisfied when order is cared for by authority, when authority sees to it that no one gets in the way of another? When then the herd is judiciously distributed or ordered? Why then everything is in the best order, and it is this best order that is called state. Our societies and states are, without our making them, are united without our uniting, are predestined and established or have an independent standing of their own, are the indissolubly established against us egoists. The fight of the world today is, as it is said, directed against the established. Yet people are wont to misunderstand this as if it were only that what is now established was to be exchanged for another, a better established system. But war might rather be declared against establishment itself, the state, not a particular state, not any such thing as the mere condition of the state at the time. It is not another state, such as a people's state, that men aim at, but their union, uniting, this ever-fluid uniting of everything standing. A state exists even without my cooperation, 
I am born in it, brought up in it, under obligation to it, and must do it homage. It takes me up into its favor, and I live by its grace. Thus the independent establishment of the state founds my lack of independence. Its condition as a natural growth, its organism, demands that my nature do not grow freely, but be cut to fit it. That it may be able to unfold in natural growth, it applies to me the shears of civilization. It gives me an education and culture adapted to it, not to me, and teaches me to respect the laws, to refrain from injury to state property, that is, private property, to reverence divine and earthly highness, etc. In short, it teaches me to be unpunishable, sacrificing my ownness to sacredness. Everything possible is sacred, property, others' life, etc. In this consists the sort of civilization and culture that the state is able to give me. It brings me up to be a serviceable instrument, a serviceable member of society. This every state must do, the people's state as well as the absolute or constitutional one. It must do so as long as we rest in the error that it is an I, as which it then applies to itself the name of a moral, mystical, or political person. I, who really am I, must pull off this lion skin of the I from the stalking thistle-eater. What manifold robbery have I not put up with in the history of the world? There I let sun, moon, and stars, cats, and crocodiles receive the honor of ranking as I. There Jehovah, Allah, and our Father came and were invested with the I. Their families, tribes, peoples, and at last actually mankind came and were honored as eyes. There the church, the state, came with the pretension to be I, and I gazed calmly on all. What wonder if then there was always a real I too that joined the company and affirmed in my face that it was not my you, but my real I. Why the son of man par excellence had done the like? Why should not a son of man do it too? So I saw my eye always above me and outside me, and could never really come to myself. I never believed in myself. I never believed in my present. I saw myself only in the future. The boy believes he will be a proper eye, a proper fellow, only when he has become a man. The man thinks only in the other world will he be something proper. And, to enter more closely upon reality at once, even the best are today still persuading each other that one must have received into himself the state, his people, mankind, and what not, in order to be a real I, a free burger, a citizen, a free or true man. They too see the truth and reality of me in the reception of an alien I, and devotion to it. And what sort of an I? An I that is neither an I nor a you a fancied eye, a spook. While in the Middle Ages the church could well brook many states living united in it, the states learned after the Reformation, especially after the Thirty Years' War, to tolerate many churches, confessions gathering under one crown. But all states are religious, and as the case may be, Christian states, and make it their task to force the intractable, the egoists, under the bond of the unnatural, that is, Christianize them. All arrangements of the Christian state have the object of Christianizing the people. Thus the court has the object of forcing people to justice, the school that of forcing them to mental culture. In short, the object of protecting those who act Christianly against those who act unchristianly, 
of bringing Christian action to dominion, of making it powerful. Among these means of force, the state counted the church too. It demanded a particular religion from everybody. Dupin said lately against the clergy, instruction and education belong to the state. Certainly everything that regards the principle of morality is a state affair. Hence it is that the Chinese state meddles so much in family concerns, and one is nothing there if one is not, first of all, a good child to his parents. Family concerns are altogether state concerns with us, too, only that our state puts confidence in the families without painful oversight. It holds the family bound by the marriage tie, and this tie cannot be broken without it. But that the state makes me responsible for my principles and demands certain ones from me might make me ask, what concern has it with the wheel in my head, principle? Very much, for the state is the ruling principle. It is supposed that in divorce matters, in marriage law in general, the question is of the proportion of rights between church and states. Rather, the question is of whether anything sacred is to rule over man, be it called faith or ethical law, morality. The state behaves as the same ruler that the church was. The latter rests on godliness, the former on morality. People talk of the tolerance, the leaving opposite tendencies free and the like, by which civilized states are distinguished. Certainly some are strong enough to look with complacency on even the most unrestrained meetings, while others charge their catchpole to go hunting for tobacco pipes. Yet for one state, as for another, the play of individuals among themselves, their buzzing to and fro, their daily life, is an incident which it must be content to leave to themselves because it can do nothing with this. Many, indeed, still strain out gnats and swallow camels, while others are shrewder. Individuals are freer in the latter because less pestered. But I am free in no state. The lauded tolerance of states is simply a tolerating of the harmless, the not dangerous. It is only elevation above petty-mindedness, only a more estimable, grander, prouder despotism. A certain state seemed for a while to mean to be pretty well elevated above literary combats, which might be carried on with all heat. England is elevated above popular turmoil and tobacco smoking. But woe to the literature that deals blows at the state itself. Woe to the mobs that endanger the state. In that certain state they dream of a free science, in England of a free popular life. The state does let individuals play as freely as possible, only they must not be in earnest, must not forget it. Man must not carry on intercourse with man unconcernedly, not without superior oversight and mediation. I must not execute all that I am able to, but only so much as the state allows. I must not turn to account my thoughts, nor my work, nor in general anything of mine. The state always has the sole purpose to limit, tame, subordinate the individual, to make him subject to some generality or other. It lasts only so long as the individual is not all in all, and it is only the clearly marked restriction of me, my limitation, my slavery. Never does a state aim to bring in the free activity of individuals, but always that which is bound to the purpose of the state. Through the state, nothing in common comes to pass either, as little as one can call a piece of cloth the common work of all the individual parts of a machine. It is rather the work of the whole machine as a unit, machine work. 
In the same style, everything is done by the state machine, too, for it moves the clockwork of the individual minds, none of which follow their own impulse. The state seeks to hinder every free activity by its censorship, its supervision, its police, and holds this hindering to be its duty, because it is, in truth, a duty of self-preservation. The state wants to make something out of man, therefore there live in it only made men. Everyone who wants to be his own self is its opponent and is nothing. He is nothing means as much as the state does not make use of him, grants him no position, no office, no trade, and the like. Edgar Bauer in the Liberalen Bestrabungen is still dreaming of a government which, proceeding out of the people, can never stand in opposition to it. He does indeed himself take back the word government. In the Republic, no government at all obtains, but only an executive authority, an authority which proceeds purely and alone out of the people, which has not an independent power, independent principles, independent officers over against the people, but which has its foundation, the fountain of its power and of its principles, in the sole supreme authority of the state, in the people. The concept government, therefore, is not at all suitable in the people's state. But the thing remains the same. That which has proceeded, been founded, sprung from the fountain, becomes something independent, and like a child delivered from the womb, enters upon opposition at once. The government, if it were nothing independent and opposing, would be nothing at all. In the free state there is no government, etc., this surely means that the people, when it is the sovereign, does not let itself be conducted by a superior authority. Is it perchance different in absolute monarchy? Is there there for the sovereign perchance a government standing over him? Over the sovereign, be he called prince or people, there never stands a government. That is understood of itself. But over me there will stand a government in every state, in the absolute as well as in the republican or free. I am as badly off in one as in the other. The republic is nothing whatever but absolute monarchy, for it makes no difference whether the monarch is called prince or people, both being a majesty. Constitutionalism itself proves that nobody is able and willing to be only an instrument. The ministers domineer over their master the prince, the deputies over their master the people. Here, then, the parties, at least, are already free, Vitaly say, the office-holder's party, so-called people's party. The prince must conform to the will of the ministers, the people dance to the pipe of the chambers. Constitutionalism is further than the republic, because it is the state in incipient dissolution. This book is continued on Cassette 7, Side 1.